Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, this is Jason Solomons. I write every week in The New European on the best in film from Europe, Hollywood and beyond. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European... Do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European Politics Podcast from the people who bring you the New European. My name is Steve Anglesey, the editor of the New European. If you like what we do and you want to be sure of getting a copy of our newspaper and access to our online archive, please subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. And I'd like to remind you all of the government guidance during the last lockdown. Hands, space, get off your face at the Downing Street Christmas party. I'm recording this on the day of the old Bexley and Sig Cup by-election, which, despite the events of the last few weeks, looks like being a Tory hold. If they do win, I'm sure the Conservatives will celebrate responsibly by which I mean cramming around 40 or 50 people cheek by jail into a medium-sized room while telling everybody else to lock themselves in a cupboard at home. Seriously? Just when you think this government couldn't get any lower, you find a secret set of stairs down, down, deep down to a basement, deep, deep, deep down in the earth's core. And then you open the door and then you find that the staff of Downing Street are in there, smashing down the Prosecco, chomping on the mini burgers, doing a Christmas quiz to find out which of their mates is going to get a 40 million PPE contract in the Secret Centre. Coming up on the New European podcast, award-winning journalist John Litchfield on the view from France of the migrant boats crisis and the eternal tragedy that is Calais. And I'll be putting more putrid politicians and pompous pundits into our hall of shame. A word about our Christmas now. We'll be releasing new podcasts on the 9th and the 16th of December before taking our own lockdown until January the 6th. So in a moment, John Litchfield on Calais and migrant boats. But first, some of your ideas on how to stop a repeat of what we saw in the channel a week ago now. 27 people killed as they took their chances in search of what they thought would be a better life. Chris Foden says, let them in, take responsibility Understand the reasons they're here and not where they used to live. Understand what they've been through to get this far. And more than anything, understand that absolutely nothing they're doing is illegal. Steve Wayne says, there isn't a migrant crisis. The UK is not among the top 10 countries in Europe to have taken the most migrants. And Rob Porter says, make it more attractive for migrants to stay at home. By which I say he means stop supporting unnecessary wars, improve foreign aid packages, talk to foreign governments with statesmanship, tact and diplomacy. 
support international law on the high seas and learn to speak French instead of talking down to them via Twitter. Joining us now on the New European Podcast, a former foreign reporter of the year who's covered French-UK relations from Paris since 1997. You might know him from The Independent, you might know him from Unheard. I'm delighted to say he also writes for The New European. His latest piece for us is entitled Calais, A War of Words Without Sense and a Tragedy Without End. That sums it up. Welcome to the podcast from Paris, John Litchfield. John, thanks so much for joining us. So before we start on Calais and migrant boats, John, a word about this French presidential election taking place next April. Um, This week, Eric Zemmour, who's a far-right pundit, has has formally entered the the race. For people who don't know too much about Eric Zemmour, what what kind of things does he believe in and what kind of impact do you expect him to have on on the race? Well, Zamor is is a journalist. And initially, he's he's been quite a, a big figure as a sort of TV pundit in France for, for many years as a writer. He is interesting, a strange, weird character in some ways. He is of Jewish origin, but essentially uh, takes the very extreme nationalist, many would say, I would say, racist point of view of uh, the the hard, usually anti-Semitic right in France, uh, to the point of uh, defending the Vichy regime during the war, which uh, says that they were kinder to Jews than people have previously said, and uh, refighting the Dreyfus case, the Jewish officer who was uh, who was framed by the French army at the end of the 19th century and became a huge um, uh, cause célèbre for, uh, in France, and not just in France at the time, so he is someone essentially who, I mean, people call him fascist, but in some senses he's pre-fascist. He belongs to a French tradition of usually extreme Catholic, but he's Jewish ultra-nationalist right that goes back in France to the 19th century. And he's trying to revive that point of view. Essentially, his point of view is that France is the greatest nation in the world. He was sort of destined to be the, the dominant nation, not the Anglo-Saxon nations that it's been uh, done down over the years by the international elites, by the French elites who have betrayed it in, in various ways. And the latest betrayal is his um, belief in the theory that there is a great replacement going on in which white people are being forced out and replaced by brown and black people. No factual evidence for that, really. Uh, obviously, there is immigration and there is a growing population of, of immigrant origin in, in France, but not one that sort of is going to dominate or push out the white people in, uh, in ever or in the near future. So it's a very extreme point of view. It's more extreme in some ways than that of Marine Le Pen, his, his far-right rival. But it does appeal to people on the right in France. It often appeals to people who you think should know better. It appeals to well-educated people of a right-wing conservative point of view who believe that somehow the politics of the last 20, 30 years has been that of, of a kind of creeping and, um, uh, and sort of soft leftist point of view, which they don't agree with. So they sort of buy into the sort of red meat Zemmour position. He was doing very well in the polls until two or three weeks ago. His his launch this week comes at a time when he's been collapsing in the polls. He was up to 18, 19% in the first round voting intentions. At the beginning of November, he's now down to 12, 13%. I suspect he may not melt down much beyond that. I suspect he will still be a player in the presidential election next year, but not likely to reach the second round and certainly not likely to win it. Is the idea that he would split the, the, the far right vote with Marine Le Pen, is that necessarily, 
is that good news for Emmanuel Macron? It's, it, it, I guess it could let in somebody who is less extreme, couldn't it? Well, that's the, absolutely the, the right question and the right point, Steve. Yes. Um, until Zemmour emerged in August, late August, early September, it seemed as if the election was sort of trailing along, likely to be a, a rerun of the election last time with Macron and um, Le Pen getting into the second round. Just I mean, very briefly, the French election is fought over two rounds. Any number of candidates, probably 15 or 16 this time in the first round, but only two in the second. And so the top two in the first round fight off in the runoff. Last time it was Le Pen versus Macron. Macron won with something like 66% of the vote, I think. All the polls suggested that the, the second round would be the same as last time, but with a much closer result, with Le Pen possibly up to 41, 42%, uh, maybe even 45%, but with Ma Macron winning. Zemmour emerging, and he overtook Le Pen for a while, suggested that he might be the candidate in the second round. He would easy, easily then be defeated by Macron as well, the poll suggested. But as you say, the possibility now that he's melting down is that he melts down a little, he takes some of Le Pen's votes away from her. And the, the score you need to reach the second round, I mean, Macron's on 25% or something at the moment, to get that second round place to be against Macron, seemed to be likely to be 20, 21% needed. It's now because there are those two candidates plus the centre-right vying for it, it could be 17, 18% is all you need. So it could be, therefore, that a centre-right candidate um, gets in the second round, which would be much worse news for Macron, in the sense that there is a lot of left-wing rejection of Macron, not to the extent where they would vote for Le Pen, I don't think, or even um, abstain in great numbers and let Le Pen win, equally or more so with Zemmour. But if it were to be Macron against a centre-right candidate, a moderate-ish centre-right candidate, that would be a much, much closer election for him. He could lose that, uh, depending on how the economy goes, depending how the whole COVID situation goes between now and next April. I can imagine Macron losing to a, a sensible, good centre-right candidate. In fact, as we speak, within the last few minutes, the centre-right's own primary election, uh, the main centre-right party, the, Republican, the first round results have just been announced, which have been a bit of a surprise. And the candidate who came top, um, Eric, another Eric, Eric Ciotti from, um, from Nice, a parliamentarian from Nice, who's almost as far right as uh, Le Pen and uh, Zemmour, has topped the first round and he will go into the second round this weekend. The other candidate who's going to go in with him is a much more moderate, quite competent, rather charming woman called uh, Valérie Pécresse, who's the president of the greater Paris region. She should beat Ciotti in, in the um, second round and therefore be the, the, the centre-right candidate. If she gets into the second round against Macron in April, she could win, could be the first female president ever in French history. She is already the first likely to be, if she wins at the weekend, the first woman to, to, to fight the election for the, the centre-right, for the party of, to the family of Sarkozy, Chirac, de Gaulle going back. So it's an interesting election, that one. Um, uh, it's not certain that she would get in the second round as things stand, but she's an interesting person to watch, I think. The people that you, you're talking about there, and Zemmour, is... Is what's happening in Calais a, a campaigning issue for them? Obviously, Macron is dragged into this by dint of being in power and having to negotiate and try and sort this terrible mess out. It, is this a is this a, a big issue on the uh, in the campaign trail? Do you think? Yes, yeah, sort of. I mean, it has been. You know, obviously, the terrible events of the last few days mm. have brought it into to the campaign, and all candidates have had a view on it. 
immigration is definitely a big issue in the campaign, but more immigration into France rather than into Britain from France. Xavier Bertrand, who was the sort of the favourite uh, at one point to win this centre-right primary, but in the end that came uh, fourth, and Michel Barnier, the um, former Brexit negotiator, came third and was knocked out. Bertrand makes a big deal of the whole Calais issue because he is the president of northern France, of the Lille-Calais-Amiens region of France, and therefore it's right on his doorstep. He for a long time has been saying that France should just abandon the treaty it's had with Britain since 2003 and let the migrants go. He was even saying this week they should be just shoved on ferries and sent to Britain. Didn't help him in the primary election, it appears, because he, he came a very disappointing for him. Fourth even though it was all very close, the top four candidates all got around about 20-25%. So yes, it's been an issue in the campaign, but much more so is the issue of migration into France than it is from France into Britain. And what about the the, the sort of the, I mean, it, I guess it's portrayed here as a war of words. I think in, in France, it's probably, uh, until the sort of the, the clown remarks of this week, it's probably been a more portrayed as a more one-sided war of words is, is this is the is the really the 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 opposite of ensemble cordial i suppose is is this tension between the uk and france uh, right at the top is this has this made this issue a lot worse than it was i think it certainly made it harder um to imagine um, an easy solution to it absolutely yes it's difficult to answer that question steve because it, i think it would be wrong to give the impression that somehow the French are not cooperating with the British because mm. they're angry with the British about fishing rights or angry with the British about post-Brexit generally or because the submarine contract with Australia was blown out of the water by the British and the um, Americans. It's not true. I don't think that there's been any kind of go slow in terms of France cooperating with Britain or essentially defending Britain's southern border, which they've been doing for 18 years now. But finding a solution... Uh, is made harder by the complete lack of confidence of the French government in Johnson and his, and his government. Um, uh, it is, yeah, I, I think that would be true. I just, I don't think, you know, the, the comments made by uh, Macron in private, which were published by Canon Chenet yesterday, are the kind of thing you hear from from the Elysee quite often that they regard. Johnson is a non-serious person, with someone with whom you cannot negotiate or talk seriously because you never know what he's going to say next. So although that's a big fuss in the British papers today, it wasn't really much of a surprise, I don't think. So yeah, I think all of that does make it much, much harder for them to come to some sort of agreement. Anyway, any agreement that's going to solve this issue is, to me, I think pretty impossible in terms of solution. I think you can imagine something emerging in which the two sides agree to manage it better and maybe do things which make that kind of calamity less likely in the future. Even that is going to be very, very difficult. There was supposed to have been a letter sent on Tuesday, I think, of this week by the French Prime Minister, uh, Jean Castex, to, to Johnson, outlining French ideas of how things could be made better. As far as I understand it, that letter has not yet been sent um, because they're still trying to work out what they can say and whether it's worth saying anything at all. Has has Brexit made the problem worse, do you think? I think it has in the sense that, in two ways, I think it's made it, well, maybe three ways it's made it worse in the sense that, first of all, before Brexit, Britain was part of the European arrangements, what is called the Dublin arrangements, uh, because it was agreed in Dublin many years ago, and then it was revised in various ways under which migrants who arrived in the EU um, 
if they sort of move from one country to the other, or asylum seekers, I should say, if they move from one country to the other, the, the country in which they finally ended up in um, appeal for asylum could send them back to the country where they first arrived under certain circumstances. And Britain took advantage of that up to a point, but it was actually quite difficult to enforce legally in British courts and in the European courts. And so not all asylum seekers who reached Britain were able to be sent back in that way. Now, pretty well none are. And that's one of the things that annoyed the French the other day after the terrible events um, in the Channel that uh, Johnson in the, in the famous letter to Macron said, oh, the, we should want an arrangement now where we can just send these people back straight away, trying to revive that agreement, which he'd sort of uh, allowed to lapse because of Brexit. So that's one way Brexit's made things work. Second, that the people smuggling gangs, as I understand it, who persuade people that going to Britain is absolutely what they want to do. Some of them want to go because they speak English, because they have contacts, families there. Some of them also are persuaded by the smuggling gangs that somehow Britain is an El Dorado for migrants because there's no um, uh, identity card system in Britain. It's therefore easier to work on the black in Britain than it is in other countries, which I don't think is necessarily true anymore. So mm. the French government says, which is probably unwise for them to say. But it's certainly true that the public people smuggling gangs so as to get the, the, their clients, as it were, make those kind of arguments. And one of the arguments they're now making apparently also is that you, they can't throw you out anymore, boys and girls, because uh, of Brexit, because they used to be able to, now they can't, which is again, a slight distortion of the situation, but they're using that argument. And thirdly, Brexit has made relations between Britain and France. It's one of the reasons why it's relations between these uh, two, two great neighboring countries have become so difficult. So yes, Brexit has made it worse. And I mean, there, there is this idea that France, which is which has it has enraged the, the, the French government and a lot of the candidates that you were talking about, and French journalists are outraged by this idea that France is doing nothing or very little to to, to stop what is happening, to stop these boats coming. When, of course, you know you've been, you've been looking at this issue for nearly twenty five years now. The, the the fact that boats has, has become an issue is because. Is, is partly because of French success in dealing with other ways of of, of asylum seekers trying to get across the, the channel illegally, isn't it? You're absolutely right. And and this is the great amnesia, I think, of the way part of the British media um, reports this story. It's as if they kind of keep rediscovering it without remembering the past um, <laughs> iterations of it, you know. And, uh, yeah, it, it, essentially, it is now very, very difficult to get across the channel by going away on a lorry or a train, Um and so the people who do turn up in Calais are pretty desperate to find some way of crossing. It was always struck me years by that it was unusual. It was surprising that uh, that they never tried to get across on boats. But there was great terror of the sea, which was quite justified, as we've now seen, which meant that they didn't do that when there was any other hope of going across uh, by any other means. That has been blocked because the French government operates as a kind of uh, first line of defence for the British frontier and has done for all those years. So it is now very difficult to get across by illegal means of that kind. But it's also very difficult, as, as various people have pointed out, uh, for, to get to Britain legally as well. That All the, 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 the kind of official channels of applying for asylum in Britain, which used to exist several years ago, have been gradually blocked. By, uh, by successive conservative governments. And so the people who, and a lot of these people maybe don't have very much claim, but a lot of them do, uh, who want to claim asylum, the only way they can do it is by arriving on British soil and saying, here I am, now I'm asylum, claiming asylum. 
The only way they can do that at the moment is by getting a boat across, and then as soon as they're within the British territorial waters, under the present under the present uh, state of affairs, which the British government, as you know, is trying to change, the British government has no choice but to treat them as asylum seekers. So, 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 so yes, it's very unfair in a way to to accuse the French of that. There have also been of make so somehow encouraging these people to cross, which is not true. As I was saying before, they are people who are self-selectively want to go to Britain. They're only a fraction of the migrants who enter France illegally every year turn up in Calais and want to go across. The rest of them feel they have contacts or the language skills to stay in France and they want to stay in France by far more than they want to come to Britain. People that come up in, in, in Calais have no interest in being in France, otherwise they wouldn't risk their lives uh, to come across. But of course, Britain does not take the lion's share of, of asylum seekers. I think there are some pieces, there's some data in, in your piece. I don't know whether you've got it in front of you, but the EU handles 400, handled 416,000 asylum applications last year, France 80,000 of those, and the UK less than 30,000. So. Yeah, that's right. Uh, absolutely right. And... Um, and if you look back, that the numbers of asylum seekers who were reaching Britain five, ten years ago was much higher than it is now. Well, that was partly because they were getting across the channel by other means, but it was also because there were other means of reaching Britain legally and making making those um, making the, those requests. Which is why the, the French are saying that the only that, that there is no direct solution. I don't think there is a simple solution. One of the ways of easing the present uh, crisis would be to for the British government to agree to accept asylum requests from people who turn up in the Pas-de-Calais and say they want to go to Britain. While they're in the Pas-de-Calais, they wouldn't have to go across to Britain. They, their requests would be treated there. They would then be uh, housed in French in French holding centres until their, a decision had been made on, on their future. That's something the British government has refused. They have agreed in two or three years ago to consider the case of minors, uh, children who are turn up and have no adult supervision or adult um, companionship in, in the Pas-de-Calais. In the fact, although they promised to do that, they've taken very, very few of them. So, it, you know, Britain has sealed all the ways that these people can get to Britain in, in, in any safe or, not particularly safe, but halfway safe or legal way. And so in the sense that the, the build-up of the present crisis is partly that, the fact that it's so difficult to get to Britain in any other way. And secondly, just that there has been an enormous increase in the number of migrants coming in to Europe generally from the number of crises that exist on the Eurasian and African landmass from Afghanistan to Ethiopia. Uh, and as, as you say, over the years, the, the migrants in Cali, their nationality has changed with the crises that have changed uh, across Eurasia and, and into Africa. At the moment, a lot of the people who are coming seem to be Iranians, Iraqi Kurds, Afghans. But a few years ago, it was Ethiopians, it was Bosnians. You know, it, it, whatever happens in Canada reflects what has been happening in terms of political crisis, war, famine, uh, thousands of miles back in, in to the east. And, and before we let you go, I mean, you know, an eminently sensible solution rejected there. Is is this the, the kind of impasse that can only be resolved by a change of government, do you think? <sighs> I don't know. I mean, it's difficult to know because it's difficult to know whether somewhere in the British government there is a kind of, you know, genuine uh, sense of conscience having been uh, struck by this, that they do feel they do need to some, do something different. You know, you can just imagine where some sort of solution, not solution, but easing of the crisis could be found where 
some sort of merger of the two proposals. Johnson's proposal that every migrant arrived should be sent straight back and the French idea that some of them should be allowed or all of them should be allowed at least to seek uh, asylum in Britain from the on the French side of the channel. Something along those lines, you think you, if there was to be goodwill on both sides, you can imagine some sort of solution emerging which might ease but not solve the problem. The problem to my mind is unsolvable finally will continue in, as it has for many years, it will be continue for many years in the future. But I, I, it's difficult to know. I think there would be the goodwill and the uh, recognition on the French side that something like that needs to happen. Whether there is on the British side, uh, you perhaps tell me better than I can tell you, Steve, because it's difficult from this side of the channel to see what's really happening in terms of really constructive thinking um, in the present British government. Yeah, definitely. As we enter the festive season, uh, definitely a lack of goodwill to work to all men on, the, on this, especially if they're on the other side of the channel attempting to come over here. Thank you so much to John Litchfield. You can read John's superb piece on the eternal tragedy of Calais and how we're making it even worse in issue 271 of the New European. It's available at News Agents now. You can read all John's work for us by subscribing at the neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Ah, John Litchfield there. And before the Hall of Shame, a reminder that Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcast is available now. It tells the life stories of amazing Europeans in short 10-minute bursts. A superb listen. It's available wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you got this podcast and news of more podcasts from the New European coming up in the new year. Finally, it's the Hall of Shame, where we put putrid pundits, pompous politicians, other things that begin with P, things that I just uh, get peed off about. Uh, the 18% are in the Hall of Shame. Who are the 18%? Well, a new poll has revealed that 52% of Britons think that Brexit is going badly, but 18% of Britons think it's going well. To which the only correct response is, what insanely powerful mind-bending substance are the 18% taking and where can I score some of it? And talking of mind-bending, alack, Igad Harumph and Widdicombe Corner is back, back, back in her terrible column. In the terrible Daily Express, the terrible Anne Widdicombe writes, when ministers wanted to use the slogan, don't take COVID home for Christmas, it was vetoed by civil servants on the grounds that the words might offend religious minorities. Now, this is referring to a Mail on Sunday story under the headline, now the woke blob tries to ban Christmas. And have you noticed that garbage in right-wing newspapers about woke people trying to ban Christmas seems to come earlier and earlier every year? Anne Widdicombe continues, I can only hope that it isn't true and that some bored journalist has decided not to get facts in the way of a good story. And, well, the fact that the, the woke blob are trying to ban Christmas isn't true, is it? Because, you know, heaven forbid that we might accuse the Mail on Sunday of letting facts uh, get in the way of a good story. But when we know what we know about vaccine hesitancy in some ethnic minority groups and the heightened effect that catching COVID has on some ethnic minority groups, isn't the idea of changing your advertising campaign so it's more inclusive to people who might not celebrate Christmas? Isn't that a good idea rather than something to sneer at? 
Sajid Javid is in the Hall of Fame this week, even though I really loved that video of him uh, encouraging a Sky reporter to go and get his booster jab. Did you see it? They were outside Westminster being interviewed. The guy said, oh, I've not had my booster jab yet. And Sajid Javid said, well, come on, I'll, I'll come with me and I'll make sure that we get it done. And then they went off together and the guy had his booster jab done. It was really great. But does it then matter when Sajid Javid goes on Sky afterwards and he says, since 2015, we've resettled 25,000 people, and that's more than any other country in Europe, which isn't true, is it? Because the government's own data shows that we're actually 17th in Europe in terms of asylum applications dealt with. And, and then Sajid Javid goes on the radio and he says, we have the most successful booster programme in the world. And then he has to admit straight away that the United States has done more jabs. So it's the second most uh, successful booster program in the world. And then we find out that in terms of head of population, Chile, Chile and Uruguay and Israel are all beating us too. And Germany has just about overtaken us in terms of booster jabs. And France is going to overtake us very soon. So the most successful booster program in the world is it's one of the best. But why say it's the best when it isn't the best? Can't even the people in this government who appear to be slightly better than the worst of the government, the sort of the creme de la dregs, can't they even they tell the truth? But foremost in the Hall of Shame this week is Ben Bradley. Who, who is Ben Bradley? He's the right-wing Tory MP for Mansfield. In the past, he's written about a vast sea of unemployed wasters, he called them, a vast sea of unemployed wasters. And he said they should have vasectomies in order to stop them having more than one children, uh, more than one child. He wrote about the death of Mark Duggan, uh, which sparked the London riots uh, 10 years ago now, wasn't it? He said, uh, for once, I think police brutality should be encouraged. Um, last year, he said the free school meals vouchers campaign that Marcus Rashford launched was effectively giving money to crack dens and brothels. And then he said that one of his constituents uh, had grown up in a crack den and one of them had grown up in a brothel. So, uh, you know, it, that, that meant that giving free school vouchers to desperate people was effectively giving money to crack dens and brothels. And if you know, you would like to go to your nearest crack den or brothel, maybe it's the same place, and see what you can get with a free school meals voucher. Uh, please do let Ben Bradley know by writing him uh, at the House of Commons, where he works some of the time, because, it, it, you know, Ben Bradley is such a busy guy when he's, he's having these amazing thoughts about vouchers and uh, Mark Duggan and uh, about these wasters uh, who should only have uh, one child and be given a vasectomy um, to stop them. And when he's not at the Commons, he's been the leadership leader of Nottinghamshire County Council. And when he's not doing that, he's acting as County Councillor for Mansfield North. And when he's not doing that or, or being a MP or, or, or being the leader of Nottinghamshire County Council, he's being the chairman of the Blue Collar Conservative Group. And then, as well as all of that, there's his true calling, which is being a nasty, vicious, full-time idiot, which he spends hours on a week. But Ben Bradley isn't in the Hall of Shame for all of that. He's been in the Hall of Shame because he said this on Politics Live this week. He said, I'm never going to criticise the government for not wanting to rush into overburdened restrictions when they are not necessary. Science is not an exact science at the end of the day. Science is not an exact science at the end of the day. And do you know what? He's right. If you're a member of this government, like Ben Bradley is, then science is not an exact science. Ethics are not exact ethics rules are not exact rules lies 
are not exact lies. And as we found out now, lockdowns are not exact lockdowns. And that's the exact reason why Ben Bradley and Boris Johnson and all the rest of them have got to go. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to John Litchfield. Thanks to our producer, Ellie Longman-Rood. Episodes of the New European Podcast are out every Thursday. If you enjoyed this one, please subscribe. You can rate and review it on your podcatcher of choice. If you'd like to enjoy more podcasts from us, please check out Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives. And if you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, visit our new website. You can join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. On social media, join our Facebook readers group. You can follow TNE on Twitter at The New European. You can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes.